we are now going to take some time and reflect on a portion of Scripture. We are going through a series on the book of Acts, which is the story of how Jesus' Spirit empowered His people to proclaim His message and be on His mission in the heart of a hostile culture. And so today, I'm doing something I've never done. I'm trying to preach on a sermon that was preached, which is a very odd thing to do, but it's one of the most famous and transforming sermons in the history of Christianity, and part of it is summarized and recorded in the book of Acts. And so, here to read the relevant portion of that sermon, the great sermon from Acts chapter 2, Rosanna. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24 and 32 to 39. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make enemies, sorry, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the word of the Lord. I've been reading a book uh, by a friend of mine, Mark Jones, called Living for God. And on page 53 of that book, Mark Jones says words which have grabbed my attention. And those words are this, Christians need to have great thoughts about God because God is great. Simple phrase, but very profound and very needed. In this world that we live in that keeps wanting to inflate our importance and diminish God's, these are very prophetic words. Christians need to have great thoughts about God because God is great. This sermon, written by the Apostle Peter, some 50 days after he had denied Jesus and his knowledge of Jesus and friendship with Jesus, just 50 days later, is a remarkable example of the truth of these words. Because Peter, just before Jesus died, when he was being tried, did not have great thoughts about Jesus. Jesus had been arrested, he had been rejected, he was about to die, and the aura of his greatness seemed to have worn off. 
Peter denied knowing him. Jesus was not great enough to honor. Jesus was not great enough to obey. Jesus was not great enough to even acknowledge as someone you knew. Peter was intimidated by the hostility, afraid of the consequences, filled with fear. And so, if recent surveys are correct, are many of us. A recent Alpha survey, which Kingsley referred to last week, shows that Christians struggle with fear of sharing their faith and a sense of inadequacy in light of a hostile culture. That would be you and me. This sermon, then, is good news because it gives us an antidote to that fear. The antidote is this, that a heart inflamed with the greatness and the glory of God is a heart that can overcome fear of hostility. And this is precisely where the Spirit of God comes in, because the Spirit here empowers this man as He can empower you and I to be witnesses for Jesus precisely by filling our hearts with the greatness of God. Peter is transformed here. It's only 50 days since he denied Jesus what caused it. Pretty clear from the historical narrative that two things caused it. One, he met the resurrected Jesus. He met Jesus and found out that everything that Jesus had promised and claimed about himself was true. His intellectual doubts were erased and overcome. Secondly, he experienced the grace of Jesus. Jesus looked at him and asked him, do you love me? And Peter broke down in tears after being asked a couple of times. And Jesus loved him, forgave him, and restored him. The greatness of God's grace crashed down upon him. But you know, that greatness crashes down upon us, and then it goes away. We have courage to be bold for our faith, and then that courage leaks. But what kept him 50 days later able to stand up in front of thousands of people and say the kinds of things he said here? It's that he was filled with the spirit of Jesus, which reinforced his courage, which reinforced his sense of grace, which reinforced the greatness of his God and allowed him to overcome the emotional angst of dealing with hostile people. So if you are here and you are investigating Christianity, I want to see how Peter would address you, and I want you to see the greatness of the Jesus we believe in. And if you are here and you are a Christian, I want you to see how you, like Peter, can be transformed from a fear-enslaved denier and hider and closeter of your faith to a spirit-filled, bold, courageous, persuasive witness. For the Holy Spirit does three things in and through Peter that are remarkable in the story and available to you and to me. Firstly, the Spirit gives Peter a great courage. Secondly, the Spirit reveals to Peter a great Christ. And finally, the Spirit invites Peter to a great calling, a great courage, a great Christ, a great calling, a great courage. Peter here 
speaks one of the most courageous sermons in history. We know that he had denied Jesus about 50 days earlier. And the funny thing or the interesting thing is a lot of the same people who shouted that Jesus should be crucified 50 days earlier are still here. It's the same hostile people who turned on Jesus and got Jesus arrested and crucified. Facing that hostility, that crowd, what would you do? What would you do? The answer is, we're probably not sure, are we? Peter does what many of us are not sure we could do. He stands up and he tells people several things that are unnaturally courageous. Firstly, he tells these people about the miracles of Jesus, the mighty acts of Jesus. He says, this is a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Peter is saying, I know that you don't believe Jesus is God. I know you have trouble believing that a human being can do these miracles, but he did them. I know it's uncomfortable for you to believe that he did them, but he did. Now, in our culture, there's a great tendency to want to reduce Jesus to a great ethical teacher to a good spiritual man, but not really talk about these mighty miracles that he did. Even within Christianity, in the scholarly, academic world, there's a desire to kind of slim down these miracles because they just seem a little too supernatural and superstitious, and we want to look sophisticated. Peter doesn't care because it is to Peter of the essence of the glory of Jesus that he's God. And that if he's God, he can do the mighty acts that only God can do. The miracles of Jesus, as inconvenient as they may be to our culture, are meant to be inconvenient because they're meant to confront our culture with the godness of Jesus. Secondly, Peter is given the courage to look these people in the eye and confront them with the sinfulness of what they did and who they are. He said, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. <laughs> now, that is provocative. I mean, I have a fair amount of relational courage, um, but I could not imagine myself getting up in front of thousands of people and going, you killed Jesus. And you have to realize, with all those people there, a lot of them probably weren't complicit in this. This isn't laser-like accusations. This is a provocative throwdown. But it is true that many of the people there were on the side of those who wanted Jesus arrested, did shout crucify him, or stood back and were complicit in the whole thing by their indifference and their inactivity. And what Peter has done is look them in the eye and go, you don't get a pass for your indifference. You don't get a pass for what you did. You need to look it in the eye and go, you didn't get a man arrested. You got God's son killed. And I'm sorry, this is real evidence that the Spirit is controlling him because who has that kind of courage to confront? And from the narrative of the Gospels, we know that Peter is a bit of a people pleaser. That's why he denied Jesus 
before. He likes to be liked. So do we. We're Canadians. We like to get along. We don't like to fight. We are considered in Western culture one of the most passive-aggressive cultures in Western society. So for us, in Canadian Christian culture, we tend to think that being spiritual is equivalent to not entering into conflict. But the Spirit of God is actually not Canadian. (laughs) The Spirit of God is actually not one who just lets sin sit. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus who died to deal with sin, who finds sin so cancerous that it alienates you from God forever, who finds sin so corrupting that it disfigures you and makes you subhuman, who finds sin so disgusting that he hates it and wants it banished forever and will do that. That's the Spirit of God. He confronts sin to get rid of it. In fact, when Jesus had told his disciples that the Spirit was going to come after he descended, Jesus described the Spirit as having just this role. John 16, 7, if I go, I will send him, the Spirit, to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and on it goes. The Holy Spirit's whole mission as Jesus sends him is to convict of sin. It's a confrontive act. That's why he came. Peter, you can tell, is filled by the Spirit because here is a people-pleasing, kind of a Canadian kind of guy, incredibly courageously confronting people about what they've done and what they need to do. Implications. First implication. This courage is available to any Christian who has the Holy Spirit. The courage to tell people the beautiful truth about Jesus and the sobering truth about themselves. That's the courage that the Spirit gives us and makes available to us. We need to follow after Peter and the Spirit with this kind of courage. And so I need to right now tell you that if you are not yet a Christian, you killed Jesus in a very real way. You weren't there. You didn't have a decision. But you know why Jesus died? He didn't die because a bunch of Romans and Jewish people got together and conspired to get rid of a political rabble-rouser. He died because humans sinned, and that sin needed a payment. And he died because he willingly went into death to pay the debt that your sin created. You killed Jesus, and guess what? All you Christians, yeah, we did too. Our sin put him on the cross. church. We're called as people who have the Spirit indwelt in us to courageously proclaim the truth about Jesus. No matter how hostile the culture is, no matter how inconvenient the proclamation is, this is our call. We cannot escape it. The Spirit was sent into us to help us, but also to tell us and guide us to do that. 
Now there's a question that uh, will arise and may already be in the Q&A phone and that is this. Someone is going to type, I don't feel that courage and I'm a Christian. How come? What's wrong with me? I've been thinking about that for a long time, particularly this week. And so I think from the way that this sermon unfolds and from thinking about this and reading about this in Mark Jones's book, I think part of the answer is this. We don't think great thoughts about God. God is not great in our mind and in our soul. And that is the issue. So let's look at our second point because I think our second point ties in and is foundational to where the courage comes from. There's a great courage because he has a great Christ. Look at what he preaches starting in verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed. Then God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is a great Christ. He shows the greatness of Christ in at least a few ways. I'm going to name a few. Firstly, the greatness of Christ in his mighty works. We've talked about this already, the courage it takes to speak of this miraculous Jesus, but this is of the essence of who he is. He is not some deluded cult leader who made claims. He is not some nice teacher of good ethics. Peter is saying to you, No, because when Jesus was kept teaching, he taught not only these great ethics, he also taught about who he was. He said, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. These are outrageous cult-like claims to divinity. And people kept saying, prove it. And he kept proving it. He fed 5,000. He fed 4,000. He raised a young woman from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He did miracle after miracle. He calmed calmed the Sea of Galilee with a word of command after a great storm. No human in history has performed these miracles save one because he's no mere human in history. He's God come down in human form in history. The greatness of Christ in his life and mighty works. Secondly, he focuses on the cross, the greatness of Christ in his death. And what Peter focuses on here in his death is this idea of God the Father joining together with Jesus in a conspiracy of love to sacrifice the Son of God that you and I might become sons and daughters of the living God. He says God planned the death of his own beloved Son. Jesus' death was not only known by God before time, it was planned by God before time. The Greek word there is the definite planning. Think about that, men and women. The greatest tragedy that the world has ever experienced, the greatest injustice ever done to any human being is the death of God's innocent son, Jesus, and God's beloved father planned it. Ephesians 1 says it was planned before the foundation of the earth. In fact, the whole Bible traces out in promises and hints and songs that this actually 
was the plan from the beginning. By Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve had been kicked, had, had alienated themselves from God, gone away from God, they were the only humans on earth that we know of. God covered them with animal skins to hide their nakedness, and he said this in a promise about the coming of Jesus and his spiritual fight with the devil. He said, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The devil would bruise Jesus' head. Hebrew idiomatic expression for the devil will kill, get Jesus killed, but you shall bruise his heel. An idiomatic Hebrew expression for crippling the ability of the devil and his forces to rule and to deceive. This was said to Adam and Eve thousands and thousands of years before Jesus came. When Abraham finally had a son, Abraham, one of the earliest of the Jewish people, the, the, the patriarch of the Jewish people, he, he had a son and God tested Abraham and said, bring your son up onto a mountain. I want you to sacrifice him there. And people are shocked and horrified, but God was testing him to see that he would trust God. And when, God, when Abraham went up to the mountain with Isaac, with the wood, ready to sacrifice him, there caught in a thicket was a ram. And he said, God himself will provide the sacrificial offering. He was pointing to the day when God himself would provide a sacrificial offering for you and for me so that we could be his sons and his daughters. And then he brought it to the whole nation of Israel in the Exodus when he finally freed Israel from Pharaoh's power by sending the angel of death, but the angel passed over the people of Israel because they put the blood of a slain lamb on their doorposts. The lamb allowed them to be passed over from the judgment of God. It's the lamb or it's you. And Isaiah tells us that a day would come, Isaiah writing 700 years before Jesus said a day will come when a final lamb will come for you. And in Isaiah 53, he describes what will happen to Jesus. 700 years, crucifixion had not even been invented as a way of torture, and Isaiah is talking about it as if he's looking at it and just saw it himself. He says, he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the judgment that brought us peace. And by his wounds you are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. There it is, traced throughout scripture, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, this truth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53. Men and women from all eternity, God has planned. And Jesus has agreed with this plan that God would send and Jesus would be sent to die for you and for me. Think great thoughts about that. Stop for a moment and think about just about this. God, from before the foundation of the earth, which is when the earth was founded, it's a long time before Jesus existed. God, from the foundation of the earth and probably from eternity past, God and Jesus have known about you and me and they planned that Jesus would come for you and me. And Jesus and his Father and the Spirit have thought about that. 
and borne the weight of that and the sorrow of that and the joy of that for all eternity, for you and for me. How long has God thought about you? Think about that great thought. How long has God's love for you shaped history for you? What a great God. The greatness of God in his death and the greatness of God in his rising from death. He says, but God raised them up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Oh my gosh, think about that. Jesus was so great that death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. The bonds of non-life could not restrain him. Death did not have the right, the authority to keep God the Son in its grasp. And then Peter quotes Psalm 16, which we took out of the reading because it was long, where it says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Psalm 16 written thousands of years before Jesus is talking about Jesus. It's amazing that Jesus is so great that death can't handle him and the grave can't hold him. Men and women, Peter knew a great God who sent his great son to die for us and raise that great son up because we need that rising and he had to rise. And this too is consistent with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because just as Jesus said that the Spirit was on a mission to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, so too Jesus says that it's the mission of the Spirit to glorify Jesus and manifest his greatness. In John 16, 14, it says, he will glorify me, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is Jesus' glory. John 15, 26, when, when the, the helper comes, he means the spirit when he says that, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It is of the essence of the spirit, not just to convict of sin and give us the courage, but to magnify the greatness of Christ. Here then, we see the spirit of God through the servant of God, Peter, witnessing about the greatness of the Son of God and glorifying that Son by taking His glory in His life and in His death and in His resurrection and spreading it to those who've not yet heard. This is glorious. Jesus finishes with one more quick description of the greatness of Jesus. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's explaining what's happening, but he's showing the greatness of Jesus in rising to the right hand of God and being exalted at the right hand of God. And everything that's happening through the Spirit is actually a sign and wonder and a mighty act to say he is reigning and ruling at the right hand of God. These signs and wonders we see in Acts are Jesus' miracles through his spirit 
through his church for his glory. And the spirit, that spirit is in you. How great is that? That spirit that makes that great Christ is in you. How great is that? The Spirit comforts you. The Spirit reassures you that you are his child. The Spirit gives you the sense that you were adopted. And you can say, Abba, Father. The Spirit encouraging you that you don't need the things of this world to be considered worthy because the Son of God died for you. That's how worthy you are. The Spirit speaking the words that you are forgiven, reminding you that there's no condemnation, reminding you that Jesus is worth it. The Spirit magnifying the greatness of Jesus, thrilling your soul, comforting you in trials and afflictions. This is the role of the Spirit. This is what Peter had in his heart, burning in his soul, thrilling his mind, and this is what Peter did. He just describe the role of each member of the Trinity in our salvation. What a sermon. Father planning with the Son to come and do the mighty works and die and then rise again by the power of the Father and send the Spirit of God to announce the reign of the Son. What a sermon. What a great God we have. The Father sent the Son. The Father, through the Spirit, raised the Son. The Son died for us and rose for us. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit into us so we would know the beauty of that and the greatness of that and be filled with the fullness of God. How about you? How about me? I have some friends that are really good friends, and um, you know you get that sort of, uh, I don't know if it's, uh, you're getting older, I don't know if it's a global city thing, I don't know if it's a Toronto thing, but it's a kind of, uh, yeah, you know, I've been to Rome, I've been to the Amalfi Coast, yeah, the Grand Canyon was pretty cool, you know, like, you're too cool for school, so you're not awed by these awesome places anymore. Oh, did you go to Niagara Falls? Oh, that's nice, yeah. I live in Toronto, we don't go, right? It's too pedestrian for us. They came back from the Grand Canyon, and I was like, you know, I've always wanted to go to the Grand Canyon. I I just wonder if, you know, it'll be too pedestrian. They go, oh, no, oh, no, go. Whatever you do, go. And if when you go, find the money, take a helicopter, like, go. It's like, okay, okay. You seem to be filled with the glory of the Grand Oh, yeah, you, it's worth it. You know what? The glory of the Grand Canyon had filled their soul and thrilled their mind, and it came out in their speech. The glory of God in Jesus is meant to do that to us. So church, application. We need to rehearse to each other the greatness of God and fill each other up with his greatness.
Who else is going to sit you down and light a fire in your heart by telling you of the greatness of God, of his works, of his son, of his spirit, of the father, of God living and dying and rising for you, and God himself coming to dwell with? Who is going to do that for you if we don't do that for each other? The role of the church the role of the worship team, the role of the liturgist, the role of the preacher, the role of the small group leader, the role of every person, the role of the youth leader, the the role of GT kids, the role of you and me is to rehearse together the greatness of God to each other and fill each other's souls to the brim with the fullness and and the greatness of God. And if you're struggling with that, read books that help you see the greatness of God. This is, a, this is supposed to be a simple introduction to the Christian life, but Mark Jones's heart is filled with the glory of Jesus, and he can't help it leaking out in almost everything he writes. May it be that we are like that for each other. Read the books. Listen to the sermons. Rehearse together. Read the book, which infallibly, authoritatively, and most preciously proclaims the greatness of God, and meditate much on it. When I was um, just out of university and starting to work, I was a pretty new Christian. I was at a church uh, in uh, Brampton. And uh, I was in the young adults at the time, and there was a, a young guy coming to me. He was in the small group that I was trying to help lead. And uh, he was really struggling in his faith. He was struggling with uh, temptations uh, of, of many kinds, of money, uh, of women, etc. And he was really struggling, and he really wanted to be a leader. And he had the gifts, but he just didn't have the motivation. I didn't know what to do with him. I was like a couple years into my Christian faith, And I said, well, I'm just going to, let's just go over this Bible study that a guy gave to me when I was in university. The first lesson was the attributes of God. It just named eight or nine of them. But it gave you verses, and you're supposed to meditate upon it. So uh, we came, and we talked about it, and he was quiet. He's usually very strong and brash. He was very quiet. He was very soft-spoken. He was changed. And then I said, okay, great. This was a good lesson. Um, seemed to have an effect on you. Good. Let's, let's do the next lesson. I'll see you next week. He goes, no. I'm not coming back. I said, oh, what? Did it offend you? He goes, no. I got it. It did it. He's worth it. We don't need to meet anymore. And he became a leader because the greatness of God lit a fire in his soul through the Spirit of God using the Word of God. May that be us. Finally, the Spirit gives us not just a great courage by presenting to us a great Christ. He gives us a great, glorious calling. Look at what happens at the end. What happens at the end is the people respond, and it's a very different response than the one Jesus got. They cut Jesus' flesh on a cross, but here they are cut to the heart by their own sin. 
because the Spirit of God has worked through this man, this people-pleasing coward named Peter, and his courageous words. They are cut to the heart by the gospel because the Spirit loves to come alongside those who have the courage to share about Jesus, and he has this effect. He brings people to himself. He has been doing it since the dawn of the church and the era of the Spirit. Jesus has been bringing people to himself by people who tell people about Jesus. And they're cut to the heart, and they ask Peter, what should I do? And Peter says, repent and believe. Repent and believe and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive the forgiveness of sins. You will receive eternal life. And they come. And thousands of people that day leave the kingdom of darkness and enter God's kingdom, the kingdom of forgiveness and grace and light. How do you think Peter felt? with all those people responding. I have a front row seat to the transformation of people's lives. I have a front row seat to eternal life being born in thousands of people's lives. I have a front row seat to history being changed. Nothing beats it. Nothing beats the joy on seeing people's lives transformed by the grace and the beauty and the greatness of God, our Savior. Men and women of Grace Toronto, this is our calling to be a people of a great Christ to courageously declare the gospel by the power of the Spirit and joyfully see the Spirit move as we do it. If you're here and you are not a Christian, I need to invite you to enter into this beauty. Jesus died for you. He took the sin that separates you from God and he said, I'll take it upon myself and I'll bear its guilt. And the father said, I want to take their sin and I want to put it on my son. The father loves you. He sent his son to die for you. The son loves you. He sent, he went, he sent himself to the cross. The spirit loves you and is waiting to come in to your life. All you have to do is open the door and receive him. And if you're a Christian and you have felt discouraged and you have felt disempowered. The Spirit of God is inviting you to a courageous, beautiful calling of proclaiming the greatness of Jesus. Let's answer those invitations. Let me pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. And I pray that you would do in us by your Spirit this great work of equipping us, giving us courage, filling us with great, mighty thoughts about you that fill us and spill out of us and see the joy of seeing transformed lives as a result. We pray all of this in Christ's name.
Amen. Time for a few questions, and Rex, you have them. I do. Um, so we've got two questions this morning that has come in, uh, but the, some of them have multi-parts. So of course we'll, we'll, they do. We are essay writers, are we not? We'll navigate it together. All right. Good morning. Thanks for the word. I wonder if there is significance that Peter was speaking to an audience that knew his former life. That is, they witnessed his transformation from a denier. Is his testimony bolder because he is speaking to the people who already knew him? Would he have been a bit gentler if it was an audience that he did not know, that did not know his former self? And lastly, how should we earn the privilege to convict people of their own sins? Oh my gosh, what the eight questions? So the first four or five, we don't know. I mean, we we don't know the context well enough to know how well Peter knew them. But Pe- you've got to understand, people are coming to Pentecost from all over Israel, just as they'd come for Passover. So it's a massive crowd. It would be like going to a Blue Jays game and getting up there and preaching. Well, you know, you're from Toronto. You must know these people. No, no, I don't, you know. If I go to a Leafs game, I'm not actually hanging out that much with Toronto people. I'm hanging out with Mississauga, Brampton, Hamilton. I'm hanging out with 905 people. I don't know if you noticed that. If I want 416 people, I'll go to a Raptors game. But my point is, it's possible, but I don't think so. I think there were a lot of skeptical people, and he knew there were a lot of people there that had been very hostile to Jesus because he speaks that way. So I'm going to take his words to help me understand his context as best I can. Yeah. So how do we earn the privilege to tell people about their sin? Men and women, I just read a testimony from a doctor who was asked a very similar question. The doctor said in response to this question, when people come to the hospital into my emergency department and they have a life-threatening disease, they don't ask me to earn the right relationally with them to take out that cancer. They don't ask me. The need drives the response, not my relational capital with them. I have the solution. They need the solution. It's life-threatening. He said when it comes to the gospel, we need to stop thinking we have such relational capital with people that they're almost like our best friends before we can share with them. We need to take a doctor's approach that there's a need that's life-threatening and the need overshadows their comfort sometimes. So we need to be bolder. I'm not saying you just go up to strangers and yell on the street. I'm saying there's a certain amount of relational capital that's probably okay, but it is embedded within Canadian culture, a desire not to deal with confrontive things, conflict. We don't talk about religion and politics and a few other things ever. And so we've created cultural barriers that the gospel doesn't recognize as biblical barriers. And I need to say to you, if the Bible is true, sin will kill them eternally. And the greatness of God should match the greatness of need and move you 
to more contagious proclamation of the gospel. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. One more? All right. Why did an all-powerful God create the principle of sacrifice? Uh, could God not have framed the world in a way to forgive our sins that does not require the sacrifice of Jesus? No. Okay, no. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so the, the, the real question is the nature of justice. The biblical definition of justice is a debt that is owed. If you owe me a debt, how can I forgive that debt? By forgiving it, right? There's no sacrifice needed. Really? Think about it. What has been sacrificed? I've absorbed the debt myself. I've paid the price for it. I've excused it, but that means I've paid. It didn't not get paid. The payer got relocated. Whenever you forgive someone, you are deciding not to put justice upon them. You're taking that justice back upon yourself and absorbing it in yourself. That is the nature of justice. It is the nature of justice as we understand it culturally. It's also the nature of justice as the Bible describes it. You can't actually have a cost-free forgiveness. It just doesn't exist. The nature of justice is there's a debt. It needs to be paid. God said, I will pay it. That is incredibly gracious. So thank him for it. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. We're going to now respond to these moments. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up for our song of response. Pray with me as you stand. Stand, please, and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the joy that we have. Now would you help us to respond rightly in song, but more importantly, as we leave this place, in our thoughts, in our desires, in our pursuit of you, in our growing the greatness of you, and in our inviting you to make us courageous witnesses for you, that the acts of the apostles might be imitated in the acts of your people throughout history, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.